0: Hey, this is Malcolm Brogdon, and this is the Sideline Guys podcast.
1: Hello, and we welcome you into another Sideline Guys Wednesday. Coming to you a little bit later here on this Wednesday after that uh, just thrilling game last night against the Lakers. Sometimes we'll record this later on Tuesday, but we're coming to you here on Wednesday alongside Jeremiah Johnson. I'm Pat Boylan. You know, we're going to delve into this game. I know a, a lot here in this show, um, but. After the game, kind of this morning, it got me thinking back actually to, I guess it wasn't our season preview show, it was the first show off of the season preview, and it was almost the back away from the ledge, the cliff version of the Sideline Guys podcast, and, and it got me kind of thinking a little bit bigger picture, just how amazing, um, amazingly quick this turnaround has been, just how remarkable this turnaround has been, I, I tweeted out a stat earlier today The Pacers are 19-6 over their last 25 games. That's the third best record in the league. Over that time, they're 12th in offense in the league. They are 4th in defense um, and doing just about everything at the level you would want them to. And so, uh, welcome on to this show. And I know uh, every single week our outlook can be a little bit different based on what is happening. But uh, winners of four straight in a row and beating the Lakers for the first time, the Lakers lost away from Los Angeles All season long, their only road loss was to the Clippers at the Staples Center. A pretty good night on Tuesday night.
0: Really good night and really good run from this team. I think 12 of the last 15 games have been wins. I mean, we've come to the listeners every Wednesday since the season started. And I think with the exception, Pat, of the first two weeks of the season, uh, we've had pretty good spirits. And uh, there's been a sense of positivity with the podcast, which we're generally optimistic, but not always positive. And I think there's been a lot to be positive about. And it's been pretty much every week that we come to you, the Pacers have won about three out of four games. And if you do that all season long, you're winning 75% of the games. They dug themselves a little bit of a hole that first week. But just in the last week, to see the performance against the Celtics and then to not let down in the road game and, I can't even remember where the Pacers were last week. Uh, Home against Charlotte, the road game on Friday. Help me out here, Pat. Against Atlanta. Atlanta, Atlanta. exactly. Uh, You know, that's a (laughs) tricky game. So at Atlanta, home against Charlotte, and then to respond again, or kind of not respond but follow up with the win against the Lakers, I just am really impressed with everything I've seen from this team. They've been level-headed, and I think it's been really good, Pat, to see them execute down the stretch on both ends of the floor because the times this team has lost – you know every time you lose a game that you don't execute in the final two or three minutes, everyone is so up in arms, but I don 't think they acknowledge the fact when you do execute late that and it leads to a win there's not the same enthusiasm. but there is general enthusiasm for a win against the Lakers and it just it kind of is one of those mornings you wake up and you kind of feel good to be associated with this team and if you're a fan, I think you probably feel good to be a fan
1: no, I think absolutely A couple of things that immediately jump out to me about this Lakers game first of all. You held LeBron James in check about as much as he gets held in check. 20 points, but on 8 of 20 shooting, 0 of 6 from 3. I guarantee you the staff would have taken an 8 of 20 night before uh, if offered before the night. 9 rebounds, 9 assists. You know, he always flirts with a triple double. But I think even more significant when they didn't have Anthony Davis to make sure LeBron James doesn't have one of those otherworldly nights. And it's crazy that a 29-9 game uh, you can look at positively, but I certainly do. Kristen Ari made the point in the locker room, you know, look, Anthony Davis is maybe a top-five player in the league. His absence was absolutely missed by the Lakers. Also worth noting, I've made this point a couple times on the podcast, but, like, the Pacers are without their best player, too. And sometimes people forget that because he's been out for so long. Um, but what they got from you know Howard and McGee is 30 points and 14 rebounds, and it's hard to imagine Anthony Davis eclipsing that too much more significantly. And I know you can't necessarily do that, um, but when you look at the defensive effort, I think the defense has really stood out to me the last handful of games, especially in the fourth quarter. I think there was a note um, by the Fox Sports Indiana research team Uh, that we get every single game that the Pacers in the fourth quarter had held opponents to 20 points over the last four or five games. The Lakers scored 26, but I thought the defense was good enough down the stretch to get it done. And uh, especially when, I guess, the final play of the game, I know they were a little bit in desperation mode, the Lakers, but um, you're never really too afraid when it's Rondo pulling up for 35 feet uh, with the game on the line.
0: Yeah, the only thing I thought, Pat, at the time, I almost would have fouled Dwight Howard when he got the rebound and then dribbling up the court. I probably would prefer that situation to foul than let someone that's an NBA player get a three-point look. And Rondo is a better three-point shooter now than he was. But I didn't even see our angle, but apparently some people have told me today that LeBron was mad at Rondo for not passing him the ball. I'm not surprised about that, but I'm not even sure that I would have been disappointed with LeBron shooting the three because none of the threes that he took that I think were going in. I mean, he was really short on many of his outside shots, and I thought it was really good defense the times that DeMontis Sabonis and Miles Turner were switched on to him that, that you don't want him to get a full head of steam and go to the basket. Now, you don't want... An uncontested three either, but they gave him just enough room to shoot the three, but then to not make it uncontested and also to not foul, which is tricky because we've seen the Pacers over the last few weeks and maybe you could even say the last few seasons foul a lot of teams shooting the three pointer. And so I thought they had really good defense and I just felt go back to halftime. It was 52 to 50. And it was kind of, as Eddie Gill told me on the halftime show, you know, such a defensive-minded game. And I didn't know that that was my takeaway. But my takeaway was that I didn't think the Pacers were really playing all that well. And to be only down two, I thought they were in a really good position. And I also thought you know, Agreed. at halftime, LeBron had 13 points, seven rebounds, and six assists. And I almost basically marked him down for a triple-double. And it just felt like watching him in the first half, it was just way too easy. And it it was like he was at the playground and he was making some behind-the-back passes that traveled through four people and uh, over his head and lobs. And you could say from a Lakers perspective, maybe he was toying with the Pacers, and that's why I was a little bit concerned, but I really felt like – They weren't going to let him have things that easily. Now, some of it's not as easy as just deciding to not let it happen. But I felt really good about the second half because I thought so many individual players could play better. The starting group as a whole, I thought, had a lot more to give and to show than they did. And if the bench just did what they did in the first half – I thought this team would be in a really good spot. That being said, when you're down five with three minutes left, you don't feel as optimistic. So a lot of twists and turns, a lot of ups and downs, but credit this team and credit Malcolm Brogdon late for being, you know, very, very clutch.
1: Yeah, I think Malcolm Brogdon, um, this game stood out to me for him, more than almost all of his and if you were to look at his stat line you'd say okay six of 16 14.6 assists well that's below his normal shooting numbers below his points per game numbers and below his assist total but he got the primary task of guarding LeBron James and you could tell that you know as oftentimes when you're tasked with guarding you know an elite elite player it can cause you to you know struggle a little bit on the other end just because of how much energy and how much effort it takes to guard a player like lebron james so for brogdon to make those plays down the stretch he had 14 points you noted this on the tv post game show i think it was seven of the final 10 so he had almost he had half of his scoring in those last 3 minutes i thought that three he hit when it was a five point game to get it from 100 to 95 i thought that was Maybe as big a play as anyone had made all game because at that point the Lakers were on a run. They were kind of, the, they had the Pacers kind of teetering on the edge. And if that shot misses and the Lakers rebound and another 20 seconds comes off the clock and maybe they score again it gets to 7 or 8, then you're probably uh, really in a deep hole and really struggling. He hit that 3, then all of a sudden it's a 2-point game, 3 minutes left. It's, it's not quite a coin flip, but it's close. And I thought that play, you know, was massive. And I agree with you about the first half. I actually asked that question, and it it was on the postgame show with T.J. McConnell. I said, um, you know, it kind of felt like, at least to me, I didn't say this question in all of this verbiage, but uh, kind of like you just mentioned, in the first half, like they could have, should have been down more than just a couple of points. For a while there, it really didn't feel like the Pacers were playing well, but they kind of weathered the storm. Things never really got that bad. I think the Lakers' largest lead was... Uh, nine or ten and so because of that uh, the Pacers you know kind of went into halftime and they had to feel like look we not we haven't played anywhere near what we can we're gonna have you know a halftime worth of Dan Burke adjustments coming up which you I think saw in the third quarter and uh, the opportunity to kind of hit the reset button and he agreed McConnell said you know I think good teams and of course he's been on a few of them now good teams find a way to keep things close when they're not playing well, and then find ways later in the game to play well. And I thought that was probably the case of the Pacers the entire night. And from an offensive perspective, certainly personified, but by what Malcolm Brogdon did in those final three minutes.
0: And just to touch on Brogdon, I'm curious. You know, I'd be curious to know even what fans thought of the post game walk off interview. He's someone that is really well spoken, but doesn't always have long winded answers. And even in an emotional moment like that in a game that Basically, is not decided until the final shot is in the air because the Lakers could have very easily uh, forced overtime. He was just not that full of joy and emotion, which you know some people could say. You know, Victor Oladipo, the moment after a game like that, you know, you know what you're going to get, and I didn't yet know what to expect from Malcolm Brogdon. But as calm as he was in the interview, and as even as. As kind of short as he was with the very first question, I was caught off guard because I I thought the first answer would at least be a little more expansive and then maybe um, shorter as we went along. And I'm not criticizing Malcolm at all because I do think there's a direct correlation to the way he handled that interview and that situation to how he handled the final few minutes of the game. He was so calm out there when the deficit was five, when he was shooting that three, when then it was tied up and he went in for that reverse layup, that I think is contagious. I think it spreads to the teammates, and he gave a lot of credit to Nate McMillan. I think these two have as good of a coach-player relationship as any duo that I've seen in my time in this job, and it's only been about two months that they've really even known each other, but Malcolm goes out of his way to credit Nate McMillan for what he's doing. You can tell how much respect Malcolm has for McMillan, and that if he has the respect for McMillan, it if any other player that is upset about playing time or decisions, they don't really have a leg to stand on because the captain and the leader of the team is kind of setting the tone for that. I'm curious what you thought of the locker room um, reactions because I've had people today ask me what was it like in the locker room, and they don't really understand. Sometimes I'm not even in there because the postgame show lasts about 30 minutes, and you're the one that goes in there and, and does the interviews. I thought it was a good sign we had – a number of good interviews early in the show, which meant to me maybe people were in the mood to talk right away. But uh, what did, what was the mood in there after the game? Did you feel like they were really kind of uh, pounding their chest a little bit, proud of the win, but then, you know, not feeling like they won a playoff series or anything like that?
1: Yeah, I think that probably describes it pretty well. And, and before we even got into the locker room, you know, we had a pretty, on the well, I used to call it the radio interview because it is the radio interview, but now it's gone in arena the last couple of years, and now we're able to use it on TV too. So it gets used on all platforms. But essentially, the other walk-off interview alongside the one you do uh, was with Miles Turner. And, you know, he's somebody that at, at times is a good interview, at times can give you shorter answers too, and you don't always know what you're going to get from him. And I was asking him the, the first question, which was just kind of a generic. You know, this was an emotional game, a very physical game. What was it like to come out on top? And he gave a good answer. And I'm holding the microphone, and he kind of starts to grab it. And I'm wondering what he's doing because, like, I'm holding it close You're enough like, up to give me it. that but,
0: microphone.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, this, is, this is what I do. I hold this. You just talk. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, and he brought the microphone up close because they can hear themselves in the arena uh, and he goes, shout out to all the true Pacers fans in here, and because the game was so close, the building was still at capacity as we're doing this interview. Sometimes when the Pacers, you know, win a game more handedly, there's only, you know, five to 10,000 people in the building. There were still 18,000 people in the building at this time, and there was a really loud, raucous kind of cheer from the crowd, and I thought that was good to see for Miles. Um, I-, I thought it kind of personified the emotion on the floor. I think also if you just watched DeMontis Sabonis during that game, uh, he's somebody that I know, you know, will show emotion from time to time. He's not always the most emotional guy, but when he shows it in the way he does, you can really tell that the game matters more. And, you know, you, you get a variety of, of answers in the locker room. Like Justin Holiday made the comment, I said, you know, does a win like this, does it feel like it means more? And he said, absolutely not. And that's probably the right answer to say, but... No offense, Justin, who I think is maybe the best interview that I've had in six years in terms of a guy who just, you know, really encapsulates and speaks well. Um, At minimum, one of the five best interviews over the last handful of years. I don't believe him for a minute. The energy in there was different. Um, You know, you certainly got the vibe of a team that, you know, felt like this was a measuring stick game and performed very well. And not just that, but it's their fourth win in a row. And in this winning streak was a win over the Celtics. And not just those things, but, you know, it was only a little over a week ago since the Clippers game where, you know, it really kind of felt like they were flat and they felt like they were flat in a measuring stick game, too. So I know you're down there as well. You can kind of feel the emotion in the arena and every night in the NBA is not the same. That one felt a lot closer to a playoff game than a regular season game. And I think you got just kind of that vibe in the locker room, too, um, the kind of thoughts I, I'm thinking back to you know, T.J. McConnell, who felt like you know wins like this made the comment, can propel you. and I've said this a bunch of times. I think it's important to find a bunch of different ways to win early in the year, and this was another one. and um, you know they're, they're playing really, really well over these last four, and they're executing down the stretch, which has been, I think, an important storyline because at times this year, especially early, that was a weakness. But you look at how the Pacers, you know, not a great opponent, but under the circumstances, a nice way to close out in New York. Um, They close out very well against Boston and L.A., who are two of the best teams in the league. Um, And then they have, you know, moments where they play really well in, in Atlanta versus Charlotte for most of the game. They have a little slippage but then close strong in those games too. And I think if there's any takeaway for me from the last handful of games, it's just been fourth quarter execution on both ends of the floor. I think it's been really, really good.
0: My takeaway would be something that I feel like a little bit of a broken record in some of my post-game interviews and then even in practice as we get set to preview uh, another game. It's how good has the bench been? How much? How about the second unit and the lift they provided? But I guess the thing that I wanted to make sure, the point that I wanted to get across is, it's just such a contrasting style at times. Not that the first unit is slow, but they're a little more deliberate, and it just feels like it's a different pace. And when T.J. McConnell and Aaron Holiday and then Justin Holiday join, and as Justin told me, we should play fast because I'm playing the four. So if we're not playing fast, that's not to our strength. It was the perfect answer, and we've um, shared that interview a couple different times, I think, on Fox Sports Indiana, but it's almost every single game that they just come in and change the complexion of the game. And it almost feels like at times, even though the numbers would say that you know, sometimes the starters get off to a good start and sometimes Indiana has a good lead after one, I just feel like if the Pacers are down six or eight points when they put in McConnell and when they put in Holiday – they speed up the tempo, and they have an advantage against the other team's second unit. And they definitely are comfortable with Sabonis, playing with him. Those four, basically, those four reserves and Sabonis is what I call a second unit, even though Sabonis is a starter and basically an all-star candidate right now. But that is a group that has so much chemistry. It's going to be very difficult to change things. If and when Victor Oladipo comes back, I have no idea how Nate McMillan is going to decide to, you know, use the second unit because... The second unit as constructed right now is phenomenal. I mean, I love watching them. I think they are such a positive impact kind of group. And uh, I'll I'll be anxious to see what happens. It'll fall under the category of pleasant problem. But the second unit to me has been been awesome to watch. And you think about this at the beginning of the season, two of those guys, TJ McConnell and Justin Holliday, were brought into this team to be good vets, I think, and to maybe be guys that you played if people were injured. And now I can't envision too many scenarios that you don't play them
1: no I think I think that's maybe the biggest takeaway of the Pacers season as a whole has just been the bench because I think we had a good feeling the starters would play well but I remember early in the year wondering you know if the bench could even get you know to the point where they could just keep the boat afloat there were a couple early games where I think that was a worry and I think the formula for the Pacers has you know been so strong the last month or so, which has been most of, if not all the starters play well and then they get a couple of contributions from the bench um, above you know maybe a typical average night's work. A couple of those guys overperform one night. But what I love about it is um, A just how consistent the starters have typically been, but B, how it tends to be different guys night in and night out. For example, against the Lakers, it was Aaron Holiday and TJ McConnell. Those two combined for 21 points, eight assists, three steals. Uh, but in many nights, it's been Justin Holiday, Doug McDermott, or you know any combination of those four who have stepped up. Holiday and McDermott in this game were just four for 13. I thought uh, the Lakers did a really good job of defending that handoff move that uh, McDermott is so prolific at taking those shots that are um, just offset of straight from beyond the three point line. They defended that really well. And um, in, in Holiday and McDermott, they played fine. Six points each. In fact, Holiday had seven rebounds to assists, And he guarded James for a good portion of the game, too. But to me, the formula for the Pacers to have success until Oladipo comes back at minimum has been for them to have the balance that they've had through the starting lineup and to have one or two bench players come in and step up. And it's been remarkable to me how you go back at almost every single game. Like, I'm trying to think... You know they had the disappointing game against the Clippers, so it probably didn't happen then. Um, maybe not that Pistons game, uh, but even that one was uh, certainly winnable. This formula has been tr- not just you know a tried and true area of how the Pacers can find success, but it's been one that they've been very very consistent in as well. You see this formula happening. I would say 3 out of every 4 games for the Pacers so maybe you know they're it's it's not a coincidence that right now they're winning about 3 out of every 4 games.
0: Yeah, last night against the Lakers, the Lakers bench did technically outscore Indiana's second unit, but I didn't think it was one of those things where that was an advantage for the Lakers. I I really thought the Pacers second unit kind of changed the complexion of the game and, and helped the Pacers get back into it in the first half and then get in a good position in the second half. Prior to that though, in the, the previous three wins, the Pacers bench had outscored their opposition by twenty three points. That's outstanding. And so I continue to look forward to watching this group. The intensity they play with too, I don't know if you even noticed Pat, but there was a point there at the end of the third quarter and sometimes TJ McConnell is so intense, I'm not sure if he's actually Angry, feisty, perhaps showing uh, a little bit of motivational tactics. I think he and Doug McDermott were kind of getting into it a little bit, and I think Doug was maybe wanting, you know, hey, I'm open, get me the ball, and then sure enough, start the fourth quarter, Doug gets the ball. But I I didn't know if you noticed that at all. But I I think that's a good thing. It's not – if TJ is getting after you, it means he cares about you. He's kind of like the old coach that they would say, well, if he's not yelling at you, he doesn't care or doesn't think you have any potential. (laughs) Um, TJ is someone who – is very vocal. He's he's the son of a coach, as Mark Monteith uh, profiled on Pacers dot com. And so he'll sometimes get after someone and then I'll see him walk away and he'll come back thirty seconds later and he'll pat him on the head. And so I, I've enjoyed watching him. I didn't know if you saw that with he and McConnell or he and McDermott.
1: I yeah, I didn't see that specifically but I have seen similar scenarios play out. And I think aspects like that players like that are so important because you go back to the point you're making earlier about Brogdon and I remember thinking in that Celtics game as he is hitting free throw after free throw down the stretch that just watching him and just getting the vibe of him at the free throw line those shots that Brogdon took against the Celtics did not feel any different than any first quarter free throw that he takes It, it was you know kind of remarkable just how that scenario felt you know, not big in the moment. And it's just the way that Brogdon carries himself, the confidence, the poise, you know, the never too high, never too low kind of thing. I think that's so important for a point guard. You know, I think it's what made Nate McMillan a really good player and it makes him a really good coach. But also, I think you need both things. Um, and it's, It's kind of why I think Brogdon and Oladipo are potentially a perfect pairing. But, in this instance, when they don't have Oladipo especially, I think it's more important, you know, you look at some of these other players on the bench, the two holidays are, you know, not super vocal type of players. They're not quiet either. Um, McDermott can be vocal when he needs to be, but that's absolutely TJ McConnell's role. And I think that's why even if he doesn't play well, you can't take him out of the rotation because I think he's so important in those aspects. And, and I remember early in the year, now it's become, you know, a little bit more usual and normal to see. But, like, you would be in huddles. We would be behind these huddles. And before the coaches come over, they all meet. And the players kind of have 30 seconds to themselves. And I remember a couple times, like, TJ McConnell, face beat red, half from, you know, the energy he was exerting on the floor, but half because of just the passion, the emotion he was having. Veins popping out of his neck, yelling stuff at, uh, you know, his teammates. And I don't – not, you know, not negative, just, like, passionate speech kind of stuff typically – And uh, I remember thinking like, whoa, this guy is as intense as any player I have ever seen uh, don a Pacer uniform. But especially, you know, I think with this group, which at times, you know, can have more of those Malcolm Brogdon type of players, which I think is very important to have, I think McConnell is far and away the best at this kind of thing. I think it'll be something that Oladipo will bring, too. But I think his importance is so far beyond the box score. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's remarkable. He has, you know, 10.4 assists, 4 rebound, 19-minute kind of games. He shoots 5 of 7 from the floor. Those are really good numbers. Um, but the way he comes in, too, and I, I think I give Aaron Holiday a lot of credit for this also, those guys come in and they just push the ball. And, and you know, at times you can get caught out of position. You can get yourself to force turn you can force yourself into turnovers you can get sloppy doing that but just the general energy knowing that McConnell's going to come in he's going to you know be fiery and he's going to push the ball relentlessly I think everybody else feeds off of that and I think you know what he brings to this team is just so much more beyond points rebounds assists uh, shooting percentage even though he has done those things really well lately
0: too. 100%, and there's a fine line for a player like that being able to be kind of a vocal leader. You have to be able to contribute on the court. You can't be the guy that's not getting into the game or the one that is playing but is not playing well and then be vocal as well. So it's been, I think, important for T.J. McConnell to play well, and then his voice is allowed to carry a little bit more. And I think what you said is, is very accurate. They have a number of quiet, even-keeled players, and it's great to have Malcolm Brogdon calm, cool, calm, connected, and clear, calm, clear, connected. Nate's three Cs. I don't know how I could get those (laughs) mixed up, but it's great to have somebody like that with the ball. But you do need the fiery guy. I think Sabonis is another one that's got a fiery personality, even if he's not off the court really rambunctious. But you need to have some – mix of calm and some mix of enthusiasm and I think McConnell is a really good fit Pat I wanted to get your take on wardrobe tonight today uh, Bill Bano, I've not seen I've seen him with some pretty stylish suits but he stepped it up a notch uh, last night and uh. the door was open for me to criticize him during the halftime interview because it was a close game if if the Pacers were down by you know 15 I wouldn't really make light of anything during that interview but because it was a close game and because I could tell he was in a pretty good mood I could have come back at him because he criticized my suit about three, two or three <laughs> weeks ago but instead I complimented him and he said the uh the players were making fun of him so it was okay to make fun of him but I'm not like that I mean I I appreciate when he steps outside the box a little bit and there was a note on Twitter about maybe that thingamajig gave him the suit advice
1: <laughs> yeah. And And if you look at the picture, which I think you tweeted out, um, you will certainly see where that is coming from. Um, when I first of all, I actually think it's a, his look last night was a really good look. When I saw him in it though, the first thing that went to my head was, I really hope this is Bill Bano's day to do the halftime, come back from halftime interview with JJ. And, and like a couple of times I was actually looking over there to see if I could catch you to ask if you were going to ask him about it beforehand. And, uh, you know, we, we just never crossed paths in the first half. Um, and then in a, in a huddle I asked, you know, did you get a chance to give him a little ribbing for the suit? He said, yeah, you brought it, <laughs> you brought it up. But, um, but yeah, you know, it's uh, I think it's a good look. But here's the thing: if you're gonna, you know, throw stones, you can't live in glass houses either. Like if you're gonna, if you're gonna step outside the box, like you were that one game, uh, you got to understand that if you're Bilbino, like it might come back to you too. And uh, prop, props to you for keeping that above the belt. But it was still uh, an enjoyable moment. I like. I was. It was fun going back and, and watching that.
0: Yeah, and we did talk uh, since. The time that he said the only th- – I think his words were, the only thing that's worse than our defense is your suit. And and, and I gave him kind of like the fake cold shoulder <laughs> the next couple of days, acting like I was mad. And he's like, you didn't need to get mad about that. I was just joking. Everybody, everybody on Twitter, they seemed to like it, which I wanted to be like, wait a sec, you're on Twitter? Um, but maybe he has people show him tweets, or maybe he's got a secret account that he does monitor things. I'm not for certain. But uh, I did tell him that it was all in good fun, and I did not mind him. Ribbing me about my suit, but all in all, it's a good look, and maybe it's a lucky suit now. Anything that happened uh, last night becomes good luck, right?
1: Yeah, I think that's how that works. Anything, uh, well, you know, if there are any trends over the last four games, I would say uh, you should keep doing that. But uh, yeah, you know, I was actually uh, the there was a tweet from one of the writers that was saying, you know, the Pacers got their marquee, their signature win of the year. I and, and not to you know discredit this win at all. I think, in fact, you might look still at the Celtics game for that, but I think it's been you know, just a really phenomenal week from a confidence standpoint to have a win against the Celtics, a win against the Lakers, and they're getting, they're, they're back to this point again, which has been you know, such a positive, and the Pacers have had it for so many years. When they play at home, um, you feel like they've got a really good chance to get every single game. Of course, you're not going to, but you feel like they've got a chance to get um, the game every single time they take the floor, no matter who the opponent is, no matter if it's the Lakers, the Bucks, the Celtics, whomever, um, and just that that you know general level of confidence that they seem to bring. It's interesting how you know you look at that's really been the case the last four or five years, and you know the Pacers have a extremely long streak, I think thirty years of having a winning record at home, uh, but just generally the level at, at Bankers Life Fieldhouse since you you know maybe started the month of November has been really, really high. Um, and so when you have stretches like this where you have five of six games at home, you know that means a lot of winning when you're playing at this level, and that's what the Pacers are doing right now.
0: Absolutely, and I think the rest of December is worth maybe taking a quick look at, big picture, because the Sacramento Kings come to Bankers Life Fieldhouse On Friday, then a very difficult road trip to Milwaukee. But you've got a couple of home games coming up before the calendar turns to 2020 that if you enjoyed the Boston Celtics game and if you enjoyed the Lakers game, these should be pretty good as well. The December 23rd matchup against the Raptors, the defending NBA champions, that – are basically proving this is not a rebuilding year. We're not going anywhere just because Kawhi Leonard left. We're still really, really good. That's a high-profile, very interesting showdown. And then after a couple of road games after Christmas, uh, the New Year's Eve game against the Philadelphia 76ers, that one should be great as well. So if you haven't been able to get out to Banker's Life Fieldhouse yet and maybe you've got some time off in the week before Christmas and New Year's, I highly recommend contributing to that atmosphere because – the field house has been buzzing. We've seen larger and we've seen louder crowds. And I think these are some matchups you want to be a part of.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. I, I can't decide if this is an advantage, a disadvantage, if it's nothing. Um, it is kind of interesting how the Bucks are going to be involved in the, you know, the two times the Pacers have played the Bucks so far, not just in back-to-backs, but in back-to-backs where the Pacers have the Rockets and the Bucks. And then they've got the Bucks and the Raptors this go around. You know, on one hand, um, you know, if those are going to be challenging games anyway, maybe you'd rather the back-to-back just be there and not against, uh, you know, a, a game that you feel like you might otherwise have a much better chance in. On the other hand, um, you know, this will be, I think, one of the most challenging stretches of the year coming up after this Kings game at Bucks versus Raptors on a back-to-back. And then uh, at Heat, that three-game stretch, very challenging. You'll go at the Hornets after that and then versus the 76ers to close out the month of December. So when you look at all that, the schedule certainly gets tougher. And I think, you know, it's important to note, and we have noted this, I think it's still kind of challenging to know exactly where the Pacers stand. I think, you know, over the last 25 games, 19-6, and six, um, that is overachieving. That is playing at a level, um, you know, higher than I think a lot of people thought they could have and it's hard to imagine doing much better than 19-6. When you throw the injuries into that mix, um, I think it's really remarkable what this team has been doing lately. Um, but, you know, the schedule also hasn't been super challenging. The Pacers have had one of the easier schedules in the NBA so far. But also worth noting that I think as you get through the month of December and you'll have games against the Clippers and the Celtics and the Lakers, the Bucks, the Raptors, the Heat, the 76ers – um, you're going to get a lot of your tough games out of the way there, too. And when you when you see some of these stats, like, you know, the Pacers have the toughest or one of the three toughest schedules in the NBA, um, that I haven't done the math, but that might not totally be the case once you get through December because you've had so many of these tough opponents coming up and you've already had so many of these tough opponents. And when you consider, um, you know, you look at all these difficult games in the month of December, so far the three that really have stuck out Clippers, Celtics, Lakers, you're 2-1 and one in those. And then you've got, you know, four more coming. Bucks, Raptors, Heat, and Sixers before you close out the year.
0: Good points, Pat. Now let's move ahead to our pick three. And it's going to be a little bit of a carryover to a segment that Eddie Gill and I had on Pacers Live pregame. This was on Sunday. We understand that it was an earlier than normal game and pregame show. And also on Sundays, occasionally, people are watching football. So we... I don't expect everyone listening to have been necessarily watching every minute of Pacers live pregame on Sunday. So I thought it would be good to kind of bring it up in the podcast and it would fit nicely in a pick three. And so the question as posed by Ken Sothman to me was, and Eddie Gill, your top four gift items for a Pacers Christmas wish list. And so these could be big picture. These could be tangible material items. Could be any number. Of things. And so I'll go with my list right now and and give you a little bit of time, Pat, since maybe putting you on the spot just a little bit to think about what you might have, what you might have on a Pacers wish list. But my first item that included some video of DeMontis Sabonis, and I said I wanted headgear and body armor for DeMontis Sabonis. And I got the idea after having a conversation with Darnell Hillman. Always great to talk to the legend, Dr. Dunk. And I was asking him about DeMontis, because they each had a statistic. I think it was the 18.22 rebound, I'm not sure the number of assists games, but one of only four pacers in the franchise's history to put up a stat line like that. And it was DeMontis and Darnell Hillman were on that list. And so I wanted to get his thoughts on what Sabonis has been able to do and just in general uh, the team at that point. And so I asked him about, I think it was prior to the Hornets game. But then it was good to kind of carry over. And he brought up something. I said, well, sometimes he gets scrapes and bruises and he gets hit so much he said well my advice to him would be don't play defense with your face (laughs) and I thought about that that seemed like obvious advice but he said there are going to be guys that they want to give you an elbow and they want to hit you and you've got to be able to move and sometimes play defense from the side and so I said well I would like headgear and body armor for Sabonis because I'm tired of looking at him and I know he never gets the calls because he's so strong and he doesn't really react to the fouls But I thought maybe it'd be nice, like boxing style headgear or perhaps body armor for Demonte Sabona. So that was my first item on my Pacers Christmas wish list. My second was peace and joy for Miles Turner. And I think we've seen some of this, even starting with maybe the Atlanta game, but just in general the last week. So perhaps my wish has been granted. But I do feel like in the last week, there is less stress. There is less, I don't know whether it's pressure, but. And this might not be the right choice of words, Pat, but I think there was a little bit of a cloud kind of hanging over Miles for a couple of weeks there where he was pressing and just maybe not having as much fun. And for him to do what he did with the microphone with you shows me he's having fun. He's a little more comfortable with how everything is going. And he even said at practice Monday he'd be lying if he didn't want more shots. And I said, okay, well, you know, he got nine field goal attempts against the Lakers. So you could argue he still could be getting more shots, but I think he's comfortable with how everything is going, and it's helping that he's hitting those three-point shots. So peace and joy for Miles Turner. I want him to enjoy being a pacer. I want him to enjoy this team, and I think we're seeing it over the last week. So that's two of my four items. This pick three may become seven or eight. Depends if you have any matches. My third one, I think maybe we could share this one, and I'll let you go after this one, was to see Victor Oladipo in a City Edition uniform. You know, he took the photo shoot with those uniforms, and I've enjoyed seeing the fanny packs, and I think this past week we had SpongeBob and uh, Bart Simpson T-shirt on the Laker game, but I want to see him in uniform, specifically a City Edition uniform, because if anybody embodies that City Edition mindset and and mentality, to me it's Victor Oladipo, so I want to see that. I don't know when it will happen. I trust it will at some point this season, but that is my third Christmas wish, and I'll, I'll, I'll save mine, my fourth one for last, but I'll let you chime in. Okay. Well, first
1: of all, I'm going to say that you ha- are going to be a lot more creative in these because, uh, at least off the top of my head, I- I'm struggling to think of the the very creative actual gifts, the physical
0: gifts that you're coming up with. So uh, I will. I will well, tip. I, I had more time to think about it. Obviously. <laughs> and, you know, in our pregame show, you know, sometimes when I'm writing my scripts and coming up with things, it just kind of flows. So that's kind of what I had for, for that on Sunday. So yeah, I'll,
1: I'll tip my uh, my proverbial cap to you on those because those are uh, are really good. I will say first and foremost, you know, just a sharing, a caring mindset. The Pacers this year are 7-0 when they have 28 assists or more. Um, they are 8-1 and when they have 27 or more. And the one loss was that Charlotte game, which was um, just such an aberration. And remember, the Pacers were really um, were really shorthanded. Turner and Sabonis didn't play in that game. So you could argue uh, that they did enough in that regard. But when the Pacers move the ball, when they share it, They win uh, almost period. Um, You know, Nate McMillan's goal is 30. 30 is a tough goal. They've done that four times this year. And, you know, even the top teams in the league don't average 30. Uh, But when they get there, uh, the Pacers are, you know, winning as a rule. So that would be one. I want to go to to Turner also because for me and for him, and if I could give him something, it would be confidence in his three-point shot. Because, A, when he's knocking down that three, it almost seems like it's, it's the same type of effect as when Sabonis is coming off as the roll man in the screen and roll. And he's got that open court in front of him kind of thing. And, you know, the, just the anticipation builds for that second until he gets to the rim. And either dunks it or lays it in. Um, part of this is because Turner's three-point shot, like, goes and nips the clouds on the way up and then comes down. Um, his shot has so much arc. But there's so much anticipation, I feel like, when Turner takes a three and in a significant moment in the game. And when his three is on, it just feels to me like it brings the team something uh, that they don't otherwise have. Early in the year, he was shooting great from three. Uh, lately, until this last game, he was struggling from three. It was three of six from the three-point line. But I also think, as he tries to figure out this new role, Nate McMillan has said you know, that he's adjusting more than anyone. Because, you know, he's seeding the inside area to Sabonis. And that was never Turner's strong suit. Um, but most of the time now, you know, he's shooting catch and shoot versus, um, you know, being the role man. He almost never is the role man. He's taking 4.33s a game. Last year he was taking 2.6. So the three-point shot I think is going to be a lot more important to Turner's success. I think when he's hitting this, you see a confidence in a player that can affect him positively on the other side of the floor. Rim protection, blocks, things like that. So um, his three point shot, I think, is the gift that I would like for him to have the most. Because as I have said in, in previous podcasts, I really truly believe the two things that are the key to where the Pacers' ceiling are this year. If there's a a one, it's Victor Oladipo. How good is he when he comes back, and how much of an impact does he have? And then two is can Miles Turner figure out his role? Can he be effective on offense, and can you know the defensive side of him? pay off on the other end of the floor, too. And if I think those questions end up um, both positively for the Pacers, then I I do think their ceiling is really, really high this year.
0: All right, so solid solid choices by you. I'm going to throw in... Um, my last one. So I don't know how many technically this pick three is, five, six, seven, who knows. But this is something that I wished for, and we've had this exercise on the pregame show the last couple of years, whether it was a New Year's resolution or a Christmas wish. And this is something that I feel pretty strongly about, and I felt strongly about each of the last two seasons, and the Pacers came just short. But it is, I wish for a home game the first weekend, of the NBA playoffs. I want this team to play at Bankers Life Fieldhouse for game 1 and I think that was one of those goals that you could not ask Thaddeus Young a question in February, March or April last year and without him mentioning that they absolutely wanted to be a top 4 team. They wanted to be a home court advantage team. And it seems like every year it gets more difficult to get one of those spots. I think yeah. a couple years ago it took Cleveland winning like 13 of their last 14 games, and then they ended up getting the home court advantage against the Pacers. And then last season, similar that basically those games against Boston went awry, and that kind of prevented the Pacers from having home court in the first round. I'm, I'm not sure that anybody right now is going to catch Milwaukee. They look like the class of the Eastern Conference. But two through six, you could ask me to make a prediction right now, and I could not get one of them right when all is said and done. I'm not sure who's going who's gonna to prevail, who's going to be the second-best team Who will struggle and maybe be closer to Brooklyn in six? It feels like those five teams are going to be two through six, but there is every opportunity with the way this team is playing, with the thought that Victor Oladipo might come back, and who knows if there are roster tweaks or adjustments uh, heading up to the trade deadline. For this to be a successful season, it seems crazy to say this considering the injuries they've had to battle through. I really think they need to be a top four seed, and if you're three or four, you're going to play a really, really good team in the first round. Why not have that home court advantage if you're playing the five or the six seed? So I just want, I want to be home the first round of the playoffs or the first game of the playoffs. So that's kind of my Christmas wish. We won't know whether that wish is granted or that's a present that's under the tree that you can open until right around tax time. But that's kind of what I'm thinking.
1: We'll see how this holds up later in the year when we're doing playoff preview, you know, type of stuff. But 100% agree with you there, and I would also say, as things are shaking out right now, even if you aren't able to get home court, the difference between five or six could be really significant because, you know, right now, the five would play Miami, who don't get me wrong, they've been great, Um, but a first-round series against Miami or Toronto, even if the Pacers were a road team, I think they'd have a really good shot at taking that. Um, If they're the road team against Boston, Philadelphia... Or certainly Milwaukee, and that you know won't happen unless the Pacers have just horrible injury luck, and I'll you know knock on wood right there. Um, but if if it's you know who's ever the three seed versus whoever is the four seed, if Boston ends up with the three seed, they're so close right now, tough to predict. Um, but you know to me, I would much rather play a Miami and a Toronto, at least where we are in the evidence we have right now, <clears throat> than Milwaukee, Philly, or Boston. And so I think that'll be interesting to watch. As the season goes on, too, I just went back and looked for curiosity's sake. And first and foremost, winning percentages oftentimes at this point of the year are not indicative of the winning percentage you'll have at the end of the year. Meaning, oftentimes, uh, you will see those go down a little bit as teams, you know, get into the "quote unquote" dog days of their season, and as you know, things get more challenging. All teams, you know, tend to hit a rough patch at some point and it seems like a lot of the top Eastern Conference teams have all been playing really well. So it stands to reason that, you know, from a winning percentage, everyone could drop just a little bit by the time the season ends. The Pacers right now are winning uh, 67.9% of their games. In 2017-2018, that winning percentage would have gotten you the two seed. So that just goes, you know, to back what you were saying. It feels like that's getting a lot harder in terms of getting a top-four seed. If it feels that way, it's because it is. It would have gotten you the three-seed last year, the two-seed the year before. And right now, this winning percentage, man, it feels like all the Pacers have done is win for like the last month or so. And they haven't moved up. They've been in six <laughs> Every time you look, they're in six. But also worth noting, um, you know, they are in sixth, but also in a games-back tie for third, um, Boston, Miami, toronto um or boston miami i should say but boston and toronto both have them on the winning percentage but they're they're right there in terms of the top teams in the league they're besides milwaukee you know they're right there with you know philadelphia too philadelphia's 20 and 8 and the Pacers are 19 and 9 so they have been improving in that regard but that six next to them has just been so stubborn
0: absolutely all right pat uh any final thoughts on the week ahead? Because you don't want the Lakers' win to be the highlight of the season, and you've got a number of good opportunities to continue to prove who who you are and what you're made of. But that Milwaukee game, that's really interesting coming up on Sunday.
1: No, it really is. And I think ideally if you can go one-and-one one in that Bucks raptors going to be challenging on a back-to-back. But if you can go one-and-one one in that stretch, I think you're really happy. Um, you know, this Kings game is, is one of those where – it's one of those games where it's at home and you're the better team, so you feel like you should win it and the Pacers should win it, but the Kings are not the caliber of team where if you you know don't show up and aren't close to 100% that you can still beat them. That that can be one of those kind of trap, quote-unquote trap games. Two off days, by the way, not off days, but two games, two days in a row without a game, which the Pacers haven't had in like a month right now they're in, which I think are you know sorely needed. But also, you can't look too far ahead if you're, you know, the players, because um, you got to get this Kings game on Friday. And if you get the Kings game on Friday, I think that really sets the table. You know, then you get to twenty and nine. The rest of twenty nineteen is very challenging. Bucks, Raptors, Heat, Hornets, Sixers. Besides the Hornets, you know, the rest of those teams are amongst the very top in the NBA. Um, but also, you never know. Pelicans, Pelicans, not Hornets. Excuse me, yes.
0: You're, you're falling into the New Orleans uh, Hornets yes, draft. Yes,
1: yes, <laughs> Thank you, yes. Um, but regardless, um, the, the you never know when this game against the Raptors, for example, on the 23rd, could come in, you know, for a tiebreak at the end of the year.
0: Yeah, and I think the day before Christmas, I mean, who knows, there's going to be probably a day off on the 24th, and maybe they'll practice late on the 25th. The good news, I think, this year is the fact that No game on the 26th. The team will be able to have their normal 26th practice, fly out on the 26th, be at Miami on the 27th and 28th. But it does feel like, at least in the Nate McMillan era or in recent years, when there is a little bit of a break coming up or a holiday coming up, this team kind of rises to the occasion to go into that feeling good about themselves. So... You know, just looking ahead to Monday right now, even though it is a short rest game, I think the crowd will be phenomenal. I mean, December 23rd is kind of like the day before Thanksgiving in terms of people from out of town being in town and having a good time. And I think the field house will be very loud. And so no matter what happens against Milwaukee, I'm really expecting a good effort from the Pacers in that game against Toronto. And as long as things go at least okay this weekend – you'll feel good about yourselves. You beat the Kings and let's say you do lose the next two. I don't think that anybody wants to do that, but if you have 20 wins at Christmas, I think you kind of got to be thankful with where everything is. And then you continue to hope for good health. We don't know the status of Jeremy Lamb. He did leave the game against um, the Lakers with a sore groin and I did not see him in the locker room after the game. So we don't know about his status for the weekend, but the good news is if he is out at all, you know, you've got a guy like Edmund Sumner that's just waiting for some playing time and an opportunity. So there are guys that if you have one or two injuries, now Jakar Sampson is back. So if somehow something happens to a front court player, you've got someone really ready to put right in into that spot and that's why you have a deep roster. So I just think that everything kind of feels really good about this team right now. You just I don't worry though that they are gonna be you know, full of themselves or satisfied and nothing that I've seen would make me feel like this is one of those teams that is is satisfied about what they've done now. They're continuing to try to get better, but they do feel a little bit of pride and a sense of accomplishment with with the wins against some really good teams to kind of show everybody, yeah, you know, we're not just beating the bad teams. Yeah, I think if nothing
1: else, you know, it it does a dent in that narrative, which we heard so often last year of just because the Pacers are taking care of the bad teams and don't have as good of a record as they like against the good teams that they're, you know, for some reason, not a good team. You can poke holes in that in so many ways because if the Pacers are beating good teams but then, you know, routinely dropping games to the Knicks and uh, some of the bottom teams in the league, then you go, you know, why can't this team stay focused? Why can't this team, you know, execute night in and night out? If you want to be negative, you can poke holes in, you know, just about every single team's record and how they've gotten to that point. But nonetheless – I think good to have won these last two against the Celtics and the Lakers just to kind of quell that a little bit. And by the way, as we close here, I just kind of realized that we're exactly a week from Christmas, which means well, I we'll was just to, gonna say that. Yeah. Well, when are we gonna do the next podcast? <laughs> we'll have to talk to, to our digital department. I mean, I guess maybe theoretically, um, you know, depending on what everybody has going on the eve, maybe they could open open up a podcast on Christmas, but then but then uh, New Year's Day is the <laughs> is the following Wednesday. The Pacers play on the Tuesday uh, before also. So uh, that'll be a little more challenging. I know we've been trying to keep this. Um, so you guys are used to having this on Wednesday, which I think has gone good this year. But uh, certainly uh, a challenge. We'll see. We'll, we'll let you know uh, what all is decided in that regard. No, no promises on the date, but uh, we will do our best.
0: So a sideline, guys, Wednesday or Thursday, perhaps in the next couple of weeks. Maybe. Well, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. We, we <laughs> might still be able to do it. It'd be nice all year to say we could put it out on Wednesday every single time. It'll be good for um, the the ad campaign, I think.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Perfect attendance. We'll try, but it's, uh, yeah, that just struck me. So if you're listening to this, and maybe you're only a couple of days from Christmas, if you celebrate uh, to everyone, happy holidays. I know it's been uh, happy times around the Pacers right now, and we appreciate you listening to this podcast and I know you and I always enjoy um, when we can talk about big games right before big wins kind of delve into some of the specifics of what's going right versus if they're coming off a losing streak and uh, fortunately the Pacers gift to us a lot of times this year has been nice wins before the podcast so uh, thank you all in the locker room for allowing us to talk about positive things
0: yeah, absolutely. So, if any Pacers players are listening, we appreciate it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I doubt, I doubt it, but who knows? Maybe, maybe one. Maybe, Justin Holiday. I mean, Victor
0: maybe. Oladipo. Doesn't he say at the beginning, you know, you're listening to my favorite podcast? He does.
1: He does. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's very genuine. So, um, <laughs> I'm sure he is listening. Uh, quick shout out to our friends. I feel like it's been a minute since we've done this, but um, I, I see all the time people posting. Stuff from you, from me on Twitter, from this podcast, um, on Pacers Reddit. So for those who follow us uh, on Twitter and on Reddit and those kind of things, uh, we see the tweets. We appreciate you know the support, even if it's you know not always a, a positive comment or something that you're frustrated in. Um, you know, one thing Eddie White always says: the opposite of love is not hate; it's indifference. So we love the uh, the fact that you know you guys are out. You're chatting with us in these different. You rooms love hate. I I do not love hate.
0: But, oh, uh, but you'd rather have hate than indifference. I would rather have hate
1: than indifference. So, yeah. But I'll, I'll, there I'll, I'll think about that one. There hasn't been much hate. No, so that's no. good too. All love. <laughs> all right. He's Jeremiah Johnson. I'm Pat Boylan. We love all of you. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Sideline Guys podcast.